really late tonight, but I've decided I'm still going to do Chapter 4 of Animal Farm by George Orwell. And it's a pretty simple chapter. I don't think there's anything really complex about it. Uh, and I even thought about holding it off, but I think I've held off enough. So let's go through it. This is Gene, and you're listening to Dumbass Talking Politics. Hey, hey, this is Gene. I am really running late tonight. And um, I got to be honest with you, I had such a good day. I really don't care. But we're going to go. Chapter 4 is not of Animal Farm by George Orwell. Not exactly the most complicated chapter. There are some things that I want to bring up. But um, I think it's going to be one of those things that I, I, I just think I, I want to get through anyway. And there are some important topics here. But essentially what's going to happen in Chapter 4 is that Jones and his farmer minions have decided or were forced to actually rebel against the animals of Animal Farm. I don't think they had a choice. And there are some things that are very interesting that the animals did that really do show um, how things work when we talk about communism and tyranny. So let's start this off. Uh, most of my major discussion is going to be in the beginning with a minor one at the end. But it's a relatively short chapter, so I said, okay, let's just do this. So let's start off with Chapter 4 of Animal Farm. Now, I just realized that it's 124 degrees in this place, and I have my fan running. So you probably heard this propeller thing, and it might have sounded as being attacked by World War I Germans in their little planes. But no, that's not what happened. I had to turn off my fan. Uh, and I'm sweating because of you people. So let, let's go on. Let's start this. By late chapter four, Animal Farm. By late summer, the news of what had happened on the Animal Farm had spread across half the country. Every day, Snowball and Napoleon sent out flights of pigeons, pigeons whose instructions were to mingle with the animals of neighboring farms tell them the story of the rebellion and teach them the tune of the beasts of England. Okay, so this is our first really thing. Globalism, imperialism. This philosophy of Marxism and communism must be spread. This was never really discussed, and I think Orwell might have had a it wrong here. Communism Marxism needs to be spread, not because of imperialism or just because things are great, but because of the lack of production of basic needs due to the lack of motivation of the worker and the lack of natural resources. Don't forget, human nature, which is something that our founding fathers of the United States pointed out, is fixed. It's not malleable. I think I said that before. It can't be molded into something that it's not. People are what they are. All right? Now, when we talk about that, um, you got to understand that people are going to want to do things that help them for only a matter of moments before they realize that 
stuff ain't helping them anymore. So, for example, if I go out there and I'm told, you, you need to mine for the revolution. I need to go into a big hole. I need to dig out gold or silver or platinum or whatever. I need to risk my life. But I'm not going to get any more than the guy who is watching me do that. That is not real motivating. And this is the problem that communism, socialism, Marxism has. It's actually motivating people to do the right thing. Now, Marx, well, not really Marx. Marx was more of a philosopher than anything else. But Lenin, Stalin, they realized you need to motivate people forcibly. And you need to always, Castro got this really well, you need to make people believe there is something else out there. There is a revolution, which we'll talk about at the end of the chapter. So this is a very interesting little portion. The reality is that the pigs already realize that, okay, we are going to need more. We're going to need to spread our, theo our, our ideology. I almost said theology. The reality is, it is a theology at this point. They just, it's, it's not going to work. Their ideology is not going to work with the animals in this specific area. And they're still going to maintain, they're still going to need to maintain some sort of resources. Be it corn, milk, wheat, whatever it is. Uh, other countries do this today. North Korea, which is lacking of oil, sits back and tries to maintain oil, tries to grab other countries to give them oil. If they had the strength, they would actually attack other countries to get that oil. Russia is the main example. This is a big example. They took over Crimea, Crimea because they wanted the land. They didn't care about the Ukrainians. They wanted the land because the land is oil rich. They wanted the oil fields. Now, does Russia not have oil? Of course they do. They have a ton of it. But there is no incentive for their workers. And there are no entrepreneurs out there to actually request that stuff, to get the oil. Venezuela is having the same problem. They have a ton of oil, and they had, they had companies from other countries that are willing to get that oil from them and give them profits. But they decided to nationalize it, and suddenly you've got people who are incompetent to pull that oil, You've got the companies that decided we're not doing this anymore and they leave. Chevron is an example of that. And that's it. They're done. And by the way, this isn't only a problem with communist countries. Mexico has so much oil. They have as much oil as the United States. But Mexico's political system doesn't allow for entrepreneurship. Because Mexico is corrupt 
It's run by drug cartels and allows for no incentives by the workers. And so they remain a third world country, even though if they sat back and just allowed free trade and capitalism to help out, they'd be fine. They'd be one of the richest countries in North and South America. But, and Venezuela was one of the richest countries in North and South America. But that's the problem. We can't, you cannot have tyranny. You cannot have nationalism. Nationalism provides no incentive and no one wants to do anything if they have no reason or they're not going to get rich. They're not going to profit. Okay, I know I told you that there wasn't a lot in this chapter as far as um, comments, but I lied. So let's let's read on. It, in the beginning of the book, there's in the beginning of the chapter, there's a ton, but not here on out. So let's move on. Most of this time, Mr. Jones had spent sitting in his tap room of the Red Lion at Willington, complaining to anyone who would listen of the monstrous injustice he had suffered in being turned out of his property by a pack of good-for-nothing animals. The other farmers sympathized in principle, but they did not, at first, give him, that's the big word, at first, give him much help. At heart, each of them was secretly wondering whether he could not somehow turn Jones's misfortune into his own advantage. By the way, that's capitalism. It was lucky that the owners of the two farms had adjoined animal farm were on permanently bad terms. One of them, which was named Foxwood, was a large, neglected, old-fashioned farm, much overgrown by woodland, with its pastures worn out and its hedges in disgraceful condition. Its owner, Mr. Pink Pinkleton, was an easygoing gentleman farmer who spent most of his time in fishing or hunting according to the season. The other farm, which was called Pinchfield, was smaller and better kept. Its owner was Mr. Frederick, a tough, shrewd man, perpetually involved in lawsuits with a name for driving hard bargains. These two disliked each other so much that it was difficult for them to come to any agreement, in even in defense of their own interests. Nevertheless, they were both thoroughly frightened by the rebellion on Animal Farm and very anxious to prevent their own animals from learning too much about it. At first, they pretended to laugh, to scorn the idea of the animals managing a farm for themselves. The whole thing would be over in a fortnight, which is a month. And they said, they put it about the animals on the Manor Farm. They insisted on calling it the Manor Farm. They would not tolerate the name Animal Farm, were perpetually fighting among themselves, and were also rapidly starving to death. When time passed and the animals had evidently not starved to death, Frederick and Pen Pinkleton changed their tune and began to talk of, a of the terrible wickedness that now flourished on Animal Farm. It was given out that the animals were uh, animals there practiced cannibalism, tortured one another with red-hot horseshoes, and had their females in common. This was what came of rebelling against the laws of nature, Frederick 
and Pinkerton said. This is horribly common. Um, and by the way, I'm not reading this. This is horribly common. This is the dismissiveness of communism. And the United States did this in World War II. By the way, this was written long before World War II or the ending of World War II. But it was just... Communism was always seen by a threat, specifically by Winston Churchill. Now, FDR thought communism was a great thing. Okay. Woodrow Wilson thought communism was a great thing. But the United States, just whatever. It's, it's going to be what it is. But the fact is, then they realized communism was really leeching into the world. World War II, it started. And with World War II, Russia would, the Soviet Union would actually, yes, the Germans took over Poland, the Germans took over Czechoslovakia, and the Soviets would not necessarily push back the Nazis, but the reality is they would take over, as the Nazis began to realize they could not take over Moscow because of the weather and fun stuff like that, the Soviets would actually move further and further west and they would take over those countries. Um, it came to a point where the United States had to deal with the Soviet Union in eastern Germany, where Germany could have been lost to the Soviets. And the United States decided, no, we can't do this. They blocked the Soviets in East Germany. They did drops in West Germany to make sure West Germany could take care of themselves. And eventually, and we're talking, we're not talking a little bit, we're talking a year it took that the United States was dropping food, oil, coal, things like that into West Germany. And Finally, the Russians, the Soviets, realized they could not keep up, and they backed off of West Germany. Then you had the Berlin Wall built, and suddenly you had an East and West Germany. So this is one of the areas where FDR did not take Stalin seriously as a tyrant and as an imperialist. And we paid the price. There's no question. Billions and billions of dollars were spent trying to keep West Germany free. The Soviets took over all of Eastern Europe. And there was nothing we could do about it. And then what happened was, this is why it find, I find it surprising when the United States said, uh, we can't let China and the Soviets take over Korea and we can't find we can't allow the Chinese and the Soviets to take over Vietnam that the United States said we have to stop this right now that's a domino theory of the United States at the time uh, communism is about taking over they're about creating a threat. They're about actually creating a satellite countries around them. They're about <clears throat> 
taking over countries for their resources and things like that. And this is what was actually happening with Animal Farm. They were already beginning to plant seeds of distrust in other countries. They did it in North Korea. They did it in Vietnam. And they ended up taking North Korea. They ended up taking North Vietnam. And the United States said that was enough. And that's what these farmers are doing. So let's continue on. Let's read the rest of this. However, these stories were never fully believed. Rumors of a wonderful farm where the human beings had been turned out and the animals managed their own affairs continued to circulate in vague and distorted forms. And throughout that year, a wave of rebelliousness ran through the countryside. Bulls, which had always been traceable and suddenly turned savage. Sheep broke down hedges and devoured the clover. Cows kicked the pail over. Pail over. Hunters refused their fences and shot their riders on to the other side. Above all, the tune and even the words of Beast of England were known everywhere. It had spread with astonishing speed. The human beings could not contain their rage when they heard this song, though they pretended to think they merely it was merely ridiculous. They could not understand, they said, how even Animals could bring themselves to sing such contemptible rubbish. Any animal caught singing it was given a flogging on the spot, and yet the song was irrepressible. The blackbirds whistled it in the hedges, the pigeons cooed it in the elms. It got into the din of the smithies and the tune of the church bells. And when the human beings listened to it, they secretly trembled, hearing it in the prophecy of their future doom. This is the propaganda. Notice Animal Farm isn't just happy with being free. They want to spread their message. This is communism. Like what China was doing in Asia during the 50s and the 60s and what the Soviets were doing in the cold, during the Cold War, the animals are doing it here. And it's working. Because they're making promises that cannot be kept. And this is where, where you have a Vietnam War. This is where you have a war in Korea. This is where things happen. It's got to stop. Now, the, the thing is, Orwell really was being... He thought about the future here. And this is what has happened. When the United States won the war. They also realized, especially Churchill, they realized um, we're in pretty bad shape here. We need to deal with the Soviet Union. We need to deal with China, which was also a closed communist economy, socialist economy. And they finally said, we've had enough. We're going to have to deal with this. And unfortunately, what happened on Animal Farm when the farmers decided to deal with the animals also happened in Korea and also happened in Vietnam. Let's listen. Early in October, when the corn was cut and stacked and some of it was already threshed, a flight of pigeons came whirling through the air and alighted in the yard of Animal Farm in the wildest excitement. 
Jones and all his men, with half a dozen other Foxwood and Pinchfield, had entered the five-barred gate and were coming up on the cart track and led the uh, and led to the farm. They were carrying sticks, except for Jones, who was marching ahead with a gun in his hands. Obviously, they were going to attempt to recapture the farm. This had long been expected, and all preparations had been made. Snowball, who had studied an old book of Julius Caesar's campaigns, which he had found in the farmhouse, was in charge of the defensible operations. He gave his orders quickly, and in a couple of minutes, every animal was at his post. Now, I want to bring something up to you here, and it kind of bothers me, and I think this is another weakness of Orwell's book. Um, why didn't any other animal know or understand Julius Caesar's campaigns? It was hidden, because the, tyrann the tyrannical government, the tyranny, needs to hide certain things from the population because you don't want the population to know any strategy or tactics. So let's continue. As human beings approached the farm buildings, Snowball launched his first attack. All the pigeons, to the number of 35, flew to and fro over the men's heads and muted upon them from the air. I'm assuming muted means they took dumps on them. And while the men were dealing with this, the geese, who were had been hiding behind the hedge, rushed out and pecked viciously at the calves of their legs. However, this was only a light skirmishing move, maneuver, intended to create little a little disorder. And the men easily drove the geese off with their sticks. Snowball now launched his second line of attack. Muriel, Benjamin, and all the sheep with Snowball at the head of them, rushed forward and pr prodded and butted the men from every side, while Benjamin turned around and lashed them with his small hoofs. But once again, the men with their sticks and their hobnailed boots were too strong for them, and suddenly, at the squeal of Snowball, which was the signal for retreat, all the animals turned and fled through the gateway into the yard. Here comes the long paragraph, but we're almost done the chapter. The men gave a shout of triumph. They saw, as they imagined, their enemies in flight, and they rushed after them in disorder. This was just what Snowball intended. As soon as they were well inside the yard, the three horses, the three cows, and the rest of the pigs, who had been lying in ambush in the cowshed, suddenly emerged in the rear, cutting them off. Snowball, by the way, that's a great strategy. If you have a stronger force, make sure you break them off so that one force, you don't have one strong force, but you have two mediocre forces. This is, this is actually great. Um, this is actually great strategy. And the difference between strategy and tactics, I'm going to sit back and talk about this. Strategy is the long run versus tactics, which are the short. So when the geese and the lambs and the one pig actually decided to attack, that's a strategy. And that's strategy to meet the, that's a tactic, excuse me, to meet the strategy. 
So right now, the idea was to make the, the humans feel like they're accomplishing something. And the reality is all, your, all the humans were accomplishing is um, meeting the strategy of the animals. And then when you have a stronger force attacking, the animals were able to break the stronger force, the strongest force, into multiple smaller, weaker forces. So basically, if you play chess, this is a tactical move. This, the goats and or the um, sheep and the geese to give the human beings some feeling good about themselves and then the human beings go crazy and then the strategy is to break the human beings up into several different this is this is great military work you guys need to read if you want to read um shinsu's uh, the art of war and it talks about this all the time okay let's continue on i didn't want to talk about this entire i didn't read that want to read this entire uh, paragraph without talking about that. Anyway, Snowball gave the signal for the charge. He himself dashed straight for Jones. Jones saw him coming, raised his gun, and fired. The pellets scored bloody streaks along Snowball's back, and the sheep dropped dead. And a sheep dropped dead. Without halting for an instant, Snowball flung his 15 stone against Jones's leg. Jones was hurled into a pile of dung, and his gun flew out of his hands. But the most terrifying spectacle of all was Boxer, rearing up on his hind legs and striking out with his great iron-shod hoofs like a stallion. His very first blow took a stable lad from the foxwood on, a skull, on the skull and stretched him lifeless in the mud. At the sight, several men dropped their sticks and tried to run. Panic overtook them, and the next moment all the animals together were chasing them around and around the yard. They were gored, kicked, bitten, trampled on. There was not an animal on the farm that did not take vengeance on them after, after their, his own fashion. Even the cat suddenly leapt off the roof into a cowman's shoulder and sank his claws into his neck at which he yelled horribly. At a moment when the opening was clear, the men were glad enough to rush out of the yard and make a bolt for the main road. And so, within five minutes of their invasion, they were, uh, they were in, I don't know what that word is, retreat by the same way they had come, with a flock of geese hissing after them and pecking at their calves all the way. All the men were gone except one. Back in the yard, Boxer was pawing his hoof at the stable lad who lay face down in the mud, trying to turn him over. The boy did not stir. He is dead, said Boxer. I had no intention of doing that. I forgot that I was wearing iron shoes. Who will believe that I did not do this on purpose? Okay, this is a big thing because here's the deal. Uh, war is war. And sometimes some people don't like war. And this was kind of hard. Now, listen to Snowball. This is what he says. We'll get into that in a second. No sentiment, sentimentality, comrade, cried Snowball, from whose wounds the blood was dripping. War is war. The only good human being is a dead one. 
I have no wish to take a life, not even a human life, repeated Boxer, and his eyes were full of tears. This is the problem. To keep a rebellion going, there is going to be bad things. And when someone who decides to fight a war or to do things that he's forced to do, it may change his mind in the future. And I have a feeling, I don't know why, but I have a feeling there's going to be some minds changed. Boxer is probably not in a good state right now. But the pigs, ignore it. And the fact that Snowball, who got shot, is bleeding, it was a, a superficial wound, is bleeding shows that, you know something? Do what the pigs do. We know better. Okay, here we go. Something more bizarre, which basically, I think, cements what I just said. Okay, here we go. Where is Molly? Explained somebody. Molly, in fact, was missing for a moment. Now, Molly is kind of that horse that's kind of a pussy, who's kind of a chick. She is a very effeminate horse. She's a female horse, but she's extremely effeminate. She's the one that likes the bows in her hair and crap like that. So let's go from there. Molly, in fact, was missing. For a moment, there was a great alarm. It was feared that the men might have harmed her in some way or even carried her off with them. In the end, however, she was found hiding in her stall with her head buried among the hay in the manger. She had taken to flight as soon as the gun went off, and when the others came back from looking for her, it was to find the stable lad, who was in fact only stunned, had already recovered and made off. Again, this is something that Orwell does consistently in this book, is that people are not all the same. So you had Boxer, who killed for Animal Farm, and he was feeling guilty about it. He didn't like it. Unfortunately for Boxer, the stable lad was fine, and he just ran away. And you had Molly, who essentially was effeminate. She was a female. She was, I don't want to say effeminate like that's a negative, but the reality is she wasn't a warrior. And so far, you've got two animals that this is not them. This is not what they do. And they have a problem with what they did. Again, it's about individualism compared to the collective. Because we're not all part of the collective. There are some people that are one way and there are some people that are others boxer who is a strong horse who can fight didn't want to kill and molly who was ready to fight but was afraid to fight this is not a thing and this is a big deal and this is the problem with the collective because the collective is always made from a bunch of individuals Okay, let's, let's move on. Let's finish the chapter.
The animals had now reassembled in the wildest excitement, each recounting his own exploits in the battle at the top of his voice. An impromptu celebration of the victory has led immediately. The flag was run up and the beast of England was sung a number of times. Then the sheep who had been then the sheep who had been killed was given a solemn funeral, a hawthorn bush being planted on her grave. At the graveside Snowball made a little speech, emphasizing the need for all animals to be ready to die for Animal Farm if needed. And right off the bat you see Snowball was or not Snowball, but Molly was definitely not ready to die. And that's an individual thing. Flight and fright. Right? Fight or flight. Boxer was ready to die, but he wasn't ready to kill. It's always, it's always ready to die for Animal Farm if needed be. It's always an extreme. It's always black and white in, when it comes to tyranny and communism. And this was a real problem because a lot of the animals weren't about black and white. They were like, I'm ready to fight for Animal Farm, but I don't want to kill for Animal Farm. And some just, I, I want to fight for Animal Farm, but I don't want to be killed for Animal Farm. That's a thing. That's called individualism. And that's where the collective fails. Okay, two more paragraphs. The animals decided unanimously, unanimously to create a military decoration animal hero first class, which was conferred there and then on Snowball and Boxer. It consisted of a brass medal, they were really some horse brasses which had been found in the harness room, to be worn on Sundays and holidays. There was also an animal hero second class, which was conferred posthumously to the dead sheep. Okay. Here's the thing. Now they were going to these animals. I, I know I said I wouldn't do this, but now the animals are going to celebrate the heroes of the revolution as if they're gods. Does that sound familiar? That's Che Guevara in Cuba. That is Trotsky in the Soviet Union. That's Stalin in the Soviet Union. That's every leader in the Soviet Union, including Lenin. And they treat them because they're going to wear those on special occasions, specifically religious-like events, and people are going to see them and hold them in respect as if they were a god or a prophet, something like that. That's a thing. And they did that. For example, uh, Kim Jong-un, which, by the way, is going to be a really interesting podcast tomorrow morning. Kim Jong-un is seen as a god. Stalin was seen as a god. Lenin was seen as a god. These Mao is seen as a god. And what they would do is wear all these medals. They would wear their military uniforms. And... Yeah, that kind of proved it, right? That's what happened. And they weren't. Okay, let's finish this chapter. There was much discussion as to the battle 
there was much discussion as to what the battle should be called. In the end, it was called the Battle of Cowshed, since that was where the ambush had been sprung. Mr. Jones' gun had been found lying in the mud, and it was known that there was a supply of cartridges in the house. Remember that? That's foreshadowing. It was decided to set up the gun at the foot of the flagstaff, like a piece of artillery, and to fire it twice a year. Once on October 12th, the anniversary of the Battle of Cowshed, and once in Midsummer Day, the anniversary of the Rebellion. If you don't know, I, I, I'm going to throw this out there. I don't know if I'm completely correct. Uh, May Day. That's May Day. It was the Rebellion. And one of the things I do want to point out, and I think I pointed this out in the previous chapter, May Day or rebellion is really important for communist countries or tyrannical governments because May Day, or I'm sorry, the rebellion is what keeps the people together. So that's it. That's chapter four. Yeah, yes, we got through chapter four. Uh, very easy chapter, really easy to annotate. Um, you can follow me on Run and Fool. You can follow me on Twitter at Run and Fool, R-U-N-N-I-N-F-E-W-L. You can download or listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, and YouTube. You can visit my website at www.dumbassestalkingpolitics and take a look at any show notes that I actually have. This is Gene. And you've listened to Dumbasses Talking Politics, and I hope you really like this book so far. Take care.